Thank you very much. Last Lord's Day, we began the new year with focusing on a message that we call the cradle of evangelism. And our thesis at that time was to demonstrate that the Christmas story contained all the elements that is necessary for the church to be involved in evangelism. In fact, the Christmas story itself is an evangelistic message. The message was there. Unto you, unto you is born this day a Savior who is Christ the Lord. His name shall be called what? Jesus. Why? Because he shall save his people from their sins. That's the message. The messengers are also represented. The shepherds there, for instance. Scriptures are clear. When they saw the baby, they went and they told what they had seen. And so the messenger are those who've had a personal contact with the Savior. That means that all of us who are believers, who place faith in Christ, are responsible for carrying on the Christmas story. All of the elements for evangelism is there. We want to continue that emphasis because I believe that we have really distorted the Bible's teaching concerning how the church is to evangelize. Today, more than ever before, perhaps, the feeling is still there that evangelism is for the evangelists. Isn't that right? Nobody's going to answer him because you're afraid. But if I ask you, what does an evangelist do, what would you say? He preached the word, right? In other words, he does something. That's the emphasis. An evangelist is somebody who does something. Isn't that right? In other words, an evangelist is somebody who gets the message of the gospel out by doing something. And that doing is what? Proclaiming or preaching. Now, when we talk about evangelizing, what comes to your mind right away? Giving out a track, buttonholing somebody you save yet? That's evangelizing. You have to go to somebody, you have to ask them a question, you have to share the gospel, you have to do something in order to evangelize. Now, of course, while that is true, that is not the whole truth. And that's where I believe the church has missed. And that's what we want to focus on today. I want to look at evangelism according to the New Testament. Evangelism, the New Testament methodology. You see, I've come to the conclusion that we as Christians have lulled ourselves into a state of complacency when it comes to evangelism because we don't think it's our job, our responsibility, or our privilege. It's for those who are called to evangelize, to be an evangelist, to be a missionary. It's those who we pay to do the job. And so many of Christians, they sit there and they just settle down. I've done my part because I've given some money to somebody to preach the gospel for me. I don't think that's in keeping with the gospel. I don't think that's in keeping with the New Testament. See, God has always had a loving concern for all of mankind, regardless of their origin or their nationality. He's always had a care for his creatures. Now, although it was true that God chose one nation from among the nations of the world to be his very own, that was Israel. He chose this little tiny nation out of all of the great nations of the world to be his very own people. And his purpose for doing so was to use them as a means of extending his blessings 
upon all the families of the world. That was made clear when he chose Abraham, the father of Israel. He will be a blessing, not just to his own people, but to the entire world. Genesis 12 gives us that story. But God's methodology for reaching the nations through Israel was not that of sending them to the nations with his message. But rather, his method was to attract the nations to himself through the unique and holy lifestyle of his chosen people. In other words, God chose a wicked people, the people of Israel who came to be called. They were wicked. They were pagans. He chose them. And he says, I'm going to make you a special people. And I'm going to give you certain principles about myself. Revelation. The truth about me that you are to live out. And as you live it out, you're going to be a witness. You're going to demonstrate what I am like. And so God gave Israel a set of laws. And he said to these people, if you do what I tell you to do, you will be a witness to the nations of the world. You will be separate. You will be different from all of the nations of the world. That's what holiness means. To be separate from everything else in doing the will of God. You see, we are holy when we do what we are called of God to do. Holiness means to be set apart for the purpose of God. So when we are doing what God calls us to be, we are holy people. And that's what Israel was to be. Israel was to be a holy people. How? By following the commands of the Father, the God who created them. But now, of course, we know the story. Israel disobeyed these laws. And rather than attracting people to God, they actually drove people away. Paul puts it in the New Testament that the name of God was blasphemed among the people of Israel because of the fact that they disobeyed the word, disobeyed his commands. They failed to be a holy people. And so the attraction that they were to be was marred. And God did not have a witness anymore. So then we come to the New Testament. What we call the age of the dispensation of the church, the age of grace, the church age, the age of the Holy Spirit. Now when we come to the Old Testament, it seems that God has reversed his methodology. Rather than using his people to attract the nations, the pagans to himself, God now says you go to the pagans. So rather than attracting, the emphasis seemed to be on proclaiming. And that's what the church, on the, for the most part, has taken up today. They have got into the idea that, and the, that evangelism means to proclaim the gospel to the unsaved. You preach the gospel. That's how you do evangelism. And that's the only way you do evangelism. This has been the focus for most of the century. Past two centuries, in fact. What started the great missionary movement that we have has been going on from last century? What started it? Hudson Taylor. Beginning the missionary movement. The modern missionary movement, we call it. What characterized that movement? People leaving their countries, going across the world with the gospel. 
Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel has become the mandate for the church. And what a wonderful truth that is. And so many millions of people have been saved as a result. Because we got the idea that you have to leave and you have to go and you have to proclaim to the unsaved. Now that is true. But that's not the whole truth. I believe if you followed the complete methodology of the New Testament, rather than just having approximately a third of the population of the world one, we would probably have two-thirds of the population one. If you followed the New Testament methodology, rather than only staying on, staying on one half of the New Testament methodology. You see, here's the idea. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to boil down a lot of things into one so we could get going into our main point here. While the proclamation principle is true and should be applied both at a home and abroad, that the gospel is primarily to be preached by the church to those outside the church, verbally, my proposition to you this morning is that that's only half the truth. And we must not allow this truth to cause us to lose sight of another equally unimportant truth. And that is that the local church as a corporate entity is directly and specifically responsible for being a witness to its immediate community. Not only in the sense of proclaiming its witness to the preaching of the gospel, but also what is perhaps even more in keeping with the New Testament idea by proclaiming its witness through loving, righteous, united lifestyle. In other words, the church must be what God wants us to be if it's going to be effective in proclaiming what the Lord wants us to proclaim. What am I saying? I say, I believe that the church itself is guilty of diluting the gospel by, what? by the way it lives. It preaches, but the preaching is not as effective because the church itself is not living a holy lifestyle. And my proposition to you this morning that the gospel message can be delighted, can be diluted by unholy people. People who are not doing what God has called them to do. And no matter how much we give, no matter how much we proclaim, if our lives are unrighteous, if our lives are unholy before God, we will not have the fruit that God wants us to have. Oh yes, we'll have some fruit, but we will not have all the fruit God wants us to have. You see, we can very easily deceive ourselves into thinking that because we are faithful in preaching the gospel by word only, even if no unsaved people are present to hear the gospel. It's amazing to me. How we think that every time we get together, we've got to preach the gospel, even though we know no unsaved people are there. Because why? The idea is, it's supposed to proclaim the gospel. No matter what. You see, that's how far we've gone. And so we can easily deceive ourselves into thinking that because we are faithful in preaching the gospel by word only, that we are fulfilling our evangelistic mandate obligation. I propose to you this morning, however, that the Bible does not suppose such a concept, nor does it support the idea that God's primary methodology for the church's witnessing to the unsaved in his community is only by the proclamation of the word, although, of course, this is included. But that's not enough. And that's where we've lost out. 
The New Testament methodology for evangelism and missions is the proclamation of the gospel backed up and motivated by a vibrant local assembly of God's people whose members reflect the character of Christ by living obediently to his word. That's the New Testament methodology as I can see it. This is a combination then that cannot be broken if the church is to fulfill its evangelistic mandate. You must have the proclamation backed up by a holy, godly lifestyle. And not only of an individual, but by the church as a whole. Now, let's see if we could demonstrate this to be biblically valid by looking at some scriptures. Remember, Christ said to his disciples, I leave you a new commandment. What was that new commandment? Love one another. Isn't that right? Love one another. This is the command that Jesus repeated again and again. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then he says again, this is my commandment, love each other. And then he puts this command alongside the command to love God. And he says these are the two great commandments. The two in which all other commandments are combined and find their fulfillment. Love God, love one another. Look at Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Matthew chapter 22, verse 34. Because I believe this is a very important truth that we must get a hold of as we approach 2007, as we enter into 2007. We've got to change our attitudes concerning evangelism and the way we do evangelism. Notice what Jesus says. Matthew 22, verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered themselves together. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Now look at those words very carefully, my friends. Remember, this was also the command which were given to Israel in the beginning. This is not a new commandment. Jesus said that. This was the same truth that God gave to Israel to say that you will be a holy people when you do these things. Holiness means to be set apart for the purpose of God. And so I say to you again, a person is holy when he or she is doing what God has purpose for them to do. And so obedience to the commandments by Israel is meant to set Israel apart or to distinguish them for all the nations of the world as a nation that followed the one true God. Obedience to the commandments would reflect his character, what he was like. That would make them a holy nation unto God, meaning that they were doing what God has purpose for them to do and to be. Jesus, therefore, is saying that love for God and for one another are the two essential ingredients that constitute a believer or a church as being holy or set apart. Loving God, loving one another. These are the ingredients that make a believer truly and essentially different from the unbeliever. To love God with our entire being and to love one another as we love ourselves. These will separate us 
from those who do not know Jesus Christ as Savior. That is why Jesus repeatedly emphasized his command to disciples, love one another. This was to be the essential distinguishing mark of a true disciple. Love. Now it's important for us to understand this. Listen to what Jesus says again in John 13, verse 34. John 13. A new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. See, that's the new command now. It isn't love one another. But the new command is to love one another as I have loved you. The standard is different. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now notice here. Notice what he says in verse 34. And this is where the truth of evangelism comes in. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples my disciples if you love one another in other words what is it that distinguishes a true disciple from one who is not a disciple at all love for one another not how you preach but how you love their love for one another was to be so evident that the world would see it and recognize that christians were followers of jesus christ they were like him that's attraction not Proclamation by mouth, but by lifestyle. Now, did the apostles learn this? Did they practice this? Well, I went through the scriptures to see how many times the disciples themselves used the same truth about loving one another. Can't go through all of them, but just let me give you a few of them. Romans 12, 9. Love must be sincere. Romans 12, Romans 13, 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. 1 Corinthians 13, 13. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. 1 Corinthians 14, 1. Follow the way of love. 1 Corinthians 16, 14. Do everything in love. That's the Apostle Paul. We could give at least 18 more references. But now listen to the Apostle Peter. 1 Peter 1. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers. Love one another deeply from the heart. 1 Peter 4, 8. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, we could give more on Peter, but let's go to 1 John. 1 John 2.10. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light, and there's nothing in him that makes him stumble. 1 John 3.11, this is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Now listen to the disciples, John 3.16. You see, when we come to the gospel, we have the sinners, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Right? That's the sinners, John 3.16. Now look at the believers, 1 John 3.16. This is what John says in 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his love for us. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. So John, the gospel, speaks of Christ laying down his love, his life for us to show his love. But 1 John 3.16 shows where the believer would lay down his life for the believer to show God's love. Now, when we do this, what happens? We show what Christ is like. We could go on through the Gospels, the Epistles as well, to show that this message of Jesus Christ was learned well by the Apostles. It was this unique character that
that gave characteristic, that gave power to the preaching of the gospel gospel by the apostles. Their love for one another provided a solid base for the effectiveness in evangelism. It was because of the fact that their love for one another was so evident that the gospel message was so powerful. But there's something else. In John 15, 8, he talks about bearing much fruit. This is what he says in John 15, 8. This is my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Notice again, the same result. If we bear much fruit, what happens? We show the world that we are Christ's disciples. If we love one another, what happens? We show the world that we are Christ's disciples. And so bearing much fruit is also an evangelistic tool. Why is it that the gospel seems to be so diluted in many churches when the preaching is going on all the time? Either there's no love, or there's no life of righteousness that shows fruit. Notice, Christ's command to bear much fruit here. It has the same purpose as his command to love one another, that the world may know that Christians are his followers. Now, his disciples, when they put these two commands together demonstrated the New Testament concept for evangelism as planned or directed by God, devised by Jesus Christ himself. When you combine John 15, 8, to bear fruit, with Galatians 5, 16, and so on, about the fruit of the Spirit, you'll see that bearing fruit has to do with living a life of righteousness. Listen to what he says in verse 22 of Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love. Now remember, we must bear much fruit. Fruit that will remain. The fruit that will remain is fruit that is produced by the Spirit. Notice, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What Jesus is saying then is that the concepts of love and fruit-bearing... The fruit that lasts are combined. Fruit bearing and love go together. You can't have one without the other. And so examine your life. If you look in your life and you say there's no fruit that lasts in my life for the glory of God that distinguishes me from unbelievers, what's the cause? You say, well, I'm doing all kinds of things. I'm involved in Sunday school. I'm involved in this. I'm involved in that. I'm doing all kinds of good things. But still, there's no joy in my life. The fruit of the Spirit. No one is attracted to me. Why? Perhaps because you're not doing it in love. You're doing it for yourself. You're not doing it out of love. Remember what Jesus said in John 15? You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. That will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. You notice that? Look at it again. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear much fruit. Now notice that. That's the concept of bearing fruit. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each each other he doesn't separate bearing fruit from loving each other because they are intricately connected jesus is saying that the godly lifestyle of believers lends power to the verbalization of the gospel as paul 
says it in Titus. We adorn or we dress up or cause to look good the gospel by the way we live. And what I'm saying to you today was the burden of my heart that I believe that too many professors, present believers make the gospel look bad. Make it look bad. We go to talk to someone and there's bitterness in, in our hearts, in our lives. There's, there's animosity in our, in our hearts when we talk to someone. Or when we try to do something, we do it because I got, this is my ministry. I'm going to show how good I can do this. I don't care how anybody else can do it. And so we do it. We say we are witnessing, are we? You see, that's because we're tying witnessing to doing rather than being. See, what has happened, I believe, is a misunderstanding of one of the basic texts for evangelism. Matthew 28. You know it. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel. Isn't that right? So what do you get from that? You got to go. Isn't that right? And then you go down further. Only those who are called supposed to go. And I call. So I can do no evangelism. See the point? That's the mentality we've come into. But now you go over to Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Look at that passage. Acts chapter 1. Verse 8, you know it well, but I believe, again, that we've misunderstood the passage. As we've done so many passages of Scripture. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall what? Be my witnesses. Do you see that? You shall be my witnesses, both at Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the earth. You, you notice that now you shall be Judah, all of these different places. Now when we bring in the true interpretation or translation of Matthew 28, we could see what Jesus really means. The passage in Matthew 28, 18, 19, 20, really should not be translated, Go ye into all the world. As though the command is to go. The passage is com correctly translated. As you are going into the world, make disciples. The command is not to preach the gospel there. The command is to make disciples. As you are going into the world, make disciples. Now, who are disciples? Well, disciples are those who love God with entire being and love one another as themselves. That's true disciples. And so now look at this verse. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses. When? While you are in Jerusalem, while you are in Judea, while you're in Samaria, while you are in the remotest part of the earth. In other words, no matter where you are, no matter where you go, as you are going into the world, you are my disciples. And what disciples do? They make other disciples. You see what I'm getting at? They make other disciples. How do they do that? Oh yes, they have to share the gospel, proclaim the gospel. Basically, Jesus says, this is how men and women are going to know that you're my disciples. If you love God with your entire being, and you love one another as you love yourselves, when you do that, you will 
you will cause people to be attracted to me. Why? Because you're going to living. You're going to be living the way I lived. I love God with all my heart, and I love you. I love you as I love myself. And so that's what the gospel. That's what he's saying here. And so when we look at evangelism, we've got to get the idea out of our heads that evangelism only means giving out tracts, having a gospel campaign, getting up and preaching the gospel. No, no, that's a part of it. But that's not the major part of it. The major part of it is when each individual believer in Jesus Christ comes to love God with the entire being and love one another sacrificially even as they love themselves. Then the world will know that you are my disciples. It's possible for us to have the best proclamation of the gospel anywhere in the world and still dilute the gospel by the way we live. Because of our pride. Because of our selfishness. Because of our hypocrisy. Because of our love to cause division amongst God's people. Love to backbite. Because of our love for material things. We could have the best proclamation of the gospel. The best means possible. But if God's people do not love God with all their being and love one another, they love themselves, we will dilute that message. But yet, we'll satisfy ourselves. Well, I'm doing all I can. My challenge for you in 2007 is not to do all you can, but to be all you should be as a believer in Christ Jesus. My friends, I can tell you this. The devil, we're going to talk next week about unity. Because there are three important parts of evangelism that we must get back to. It's one of loving God, it's one of loving others, and the other idea is unity. Jesus says you shall be one, and then everybody will know what? That you're my disciples. Unity. When we have divisions and fights going on in the church, you just well forget evangelism. You just well forget it. These three elements then, and I'm laying the foundation for the message that I was supposed to give this morning. Really, love, a life of holiness, and unity. Those are essential ingredients for the people of God if evangelism is going to be effective. Because when you have unity in your own life, when you love God, you love one another, you are witnessing. You understand? You are a witness. If you are a believer, in fact, you are a witness. Now, you might be a terrible witness because the way you lie, the way you steal, and all that kind of stuff, you go into office and you become just like them. You gossip, you talk about them just like everybody else. You're a witness, but you're a bad witness. You understand what I'm saying? Now, you change your lifestyle by the grace of God. And you love God. You show people that you love God. You love one another. And you show people that, that, that. And you have a sense of oneness and unity. You will see the change. You understand what I'm saying? You are a witness. The question is, what kind? Some of you who call yourself Christians are driving people away from Jesus Christ. Because of the way you live. Others, because of the way they live, attracting people to Jesus Christ. Somebody once asked another person, I forgot who it was. He says, uh, what do you think the, the, the greatest problem in the church is? He says, for getting an unbeliever to come to a Christian. Well, he says there are two things. Well, first of all, number one, a lot of people are not Christians because they have never met a Christian. He says, number two, a lot of people are not Christians because they have. 
Do you get it? A lot of people are not Christians because they've never met a Christian. A lot of people are not Christians because they have met Christian by name. What kind of Christian are you? In 2007, I implore you, love God with your entire being. Love one another as you love yourself. Don't allow petty nonsense to keep you divided and separated from the people of God. Stop gossiping about one another. Stop these cliques that you have. It's only tearing apart the body of Christ. And it's a hindrance to the proclamation of the gospel. Have unity. We demonstrate those three elements in our life as members of the incredible body of Christ. And we will bear much fruit. And it will be fruit that remain. Follow with me in a word of prayer, please. If God has spoken to you in any means today, whether through the songs that were sung, the prayers that were made, the message that was said, whatever, his word. If God has spoken to you and there's a confession that you need to make, do that now. Take a few moments. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, this is the moment for you to do that. Acknowledge that you're a sinner. Christ died for you. He was raised again for your justification and that you are trusting in him and him alone the basis for your salvation. Perhaps you have been demonstrating a lack of love towards another Christian. You just don't like them because of the way they do the things they say or what something they've done, you won't forgive. You need to get that right between you and God and you and them. And then commit yourself to loving God with your entire being. Committing in 2007, you will seek to draw closer to God than you've ever been. You will seek an intimate relationship with him. You will seek a committed relationship with him in 2007. Pray that God will use you as his witness as you go into the office, as you go into the neighborhood, as you go into the school. You will demonstrate what Christ is like so that people will know that you are his disciple and be attracted to him, give you an opportunity for sharing the message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Just before we sing our last song, I'd like to point out that tonight uh, there is a special film that will be shown um, at the end of the spare, and it's going to start at 6 p.m. I, I forgot. Uh, yes, this is the, I really want you to come out for this one, uh, the end of the spare. This has to do with the five missionaries who were killed, the martyrs who were killed in 1956 or so. The story is told now in retrospect. In other words, they learned a lot of things from the people. And so now they know exactly why these men were killed. And it's not because of what you think. And it's a tremendous story. And so we ask you to come out, but it is a little long, so we ask you to come out at 6.15 so we can be out by 8. Please come. Bring your young people if you want. This will be a real challenge and a blessing. Benevolent offering.